This is Criterion Cast Chronicles, Episode 2. We're recording this on Wednesday, April 6th, 2016. Tonight we'll be discussing the March 2016 Criterion Collection lineup. Joining me to discuss these films tonight, I have David Blakesley. Hey, David. Good evening. I have Scott Nye. Hey, Scott. Ahoy. And joining us tonight is Arik Devins. Hey, Arik. Happy to be here. All right, guys. So episode two, we're back. We uh, Episode one, I think, was pretty successful. We had a lot of fun discussing the, the February titles. And, um, you know, there was a pretty good response to it as far as everyone out there in the in our uh, audience listening to the shows. And they everyone seemed to enjoy it. So time to do another one. Tonight, uh, we'll be covering the, the five March titles that Criterion released. Uh, the last of them was just released, uh, let's see, last week. And so now we, we've we all had a chance to at least watch some of them, if not all of them. And so uh, one or more of us will be discussing, or at least like kind of leading the conversation in uh, discussing the five films. So we'll be going in the order that they were released and then also kind of in spine order number, except for Bicycle Thieves, which we'll save for the end. Um, so yeah. Guys, thanks for joining me tonight. Let's let's uh, jump into this discussion. So we're going to start off tonight with the first Jacques Rivette film in the Criterion Collection, Paris Belongs to Us. Scott, you uh, are, as far as I'm concerned, uh, our biggest Rivette uh, expert, <laughs> given that you have devoted so much time to watching the, uh, the Rivette Collection box set from Arrow and now you know, taking on the responsibility of uh, leading our discussion here for Paris Belongs to Us. Yeah, well, I hope the true Rivette diehards that might be listening won't uh, <laughs> jump on me too much. I'm still still feeling my way through, guys. Uh, this is my first time seeing Paris Belongs to Us because it had never been available, aside from its availability on the Hulu channel, I suppose, but never available on home video here in the country. So not only this is the first Rivette film, it's one of the first to kind of come out here. Well, I guess it's not. I'm already jumping all over myself. Anyway, the point <laughs> is, it's a very exciting release. It's Jacques Rivette's very first uh, feature-length film, uh, and in many ways kind of sets the template for what is to come. In many ways, uh, it starts out with a woman in a mode of performance, just as several of his films to come will, um, and then launches into a kind of a dual narrative of her rise through a theatrical troupe and her investigation of what she believes is a wide-ranging conspiracy and what uh, the people around her keep insisting is definitely a wide-ranging conspiracy. And uh, as is common for Rivette, you know, it, it kind of maybe is and kind of maybe isn't. And the this, this kind of subject is such catnip, I think, for cinephiles to get a mystery film that has no resolution. You know, we we all seem to love the the thrill the pursuit, but then get kind of let down by, you know, what ends up being at the end of these sort of journeys, kind of a very tepid explanation, but there's no such explanation here. There's just more evidence mounting on itself. And, you know, I don't, I don't know what the tone is, was in France in the late 1950s, but I'm told those kind of, uh, indicative of what we see in the film and that, uh, there was kind of this air post-World War II of uncertainty and the feeling that the world was starting to close in. And as he will so often do, you know, Paris is sort of the perfect city in which to represent that because there are so many pockets and it seems to, just walking around it, it seems to kind of fold in on itself. Uh, and he really brings that out and just finding all these different corners for the people to rehearse in or weird apartment buildings for her to travel down. And 
you know, it's definitely a first feature in a lot of ways. And Rivette was constantly chasing a sort of amateurish quality. He never wanted, it seems like, from his films to have kind of a perfect unified object. And they discussed in one of the special features, one of the few special features that the disc offers, uh, that this was kind of what he chased in films that he loved, that he wanted to watch from even like great masters like Hitchcock. He wanted to see their more uneven work. And so for him to take that approach on his debut film, it does result in, you know, some moments that don't totally push the movie along even to its more uh, opaque ends. But, and there is sort of that amateurish quality that isn't quite fully formed the way that it will be later in Out One, where it's that amateurishness is kind of mastered or kind of paired with uh, his evolving mastery of the form. And the way that pairs eventually, I think, becomes more interesting. But this is still a really, really remarkable debut feature and really distinct in the French New Wave. It's much less, it's playful in some ways, but much less forcefully so. And it's much longer, certainly, and much more mournful um, of the state of the world. Uh, but I'm really thrilled that Criterion presented it. And they did, an, an, I think, an incredible job. This is probably my favorite transfer I've seen from them this year. It's really uh, filmic and lets different shots look differently. It doesn't try to uh, impose a sort of uniform quality over everything uh and it lets it still just like i always say i like my transfers that still look like a film um but i wonder how you guys found it uh this is probably for maybe some of you your first revet film so i wonder how that played um and if you thought this was a good introduction i thought so i mean i i definitely i have not opened my arrow box yet it's still sitting in the wrap uh staring at me right now on, on my desk but i uh, I'm glad that I watched this first, as well as watching the the Richard Newport uh, interview. I think he's the the um, the author of the history of the French New Wave cinema, and he talks about Rivette, and he talks about you know um, kind of that that whole group of people in Paris at the time. Um, and I thought that was a really nice little introduction to him, as well as the movie, and then kind of leading up to things like Out One. Yeah, for sure. I mean. As much as this is kind of a template for all his films to come, this really feels like a rough draft of Out One, um, which is a strange thing to say about a rambling 13-hour film, that there would be a rough draft version of that. But um, this is definitely, you know, going at some of the same themes. Yeah. Um, did, uh, I guess, Arik or David, did either of you get a chance to watch this yet? Have you either of you tried watching it on Hulu if you didn't buy the Blu-ray? Uh, I've watched it. Yeah, I, I've actually sat through it uh probably three times i can and one of them was a kind of a distracted view just to kind of settle into it and you know it's like opening day of baseball season and, and <laughs> so, you know just you know, just you know a lot of stuff so so i was just kind of get kind of gathering an impression then the second time was just kind of a um you know just again getting into the atmosphere and attitude of the movie i think that's what really kind of sticks with me the most but this this is my first watch of a rivet film and i guess i'll just kind of preface my comments to say i i can sort of understand both why uh, Criterion, as well as maybe other American distributors, maybe have taken their time to release Rivet films. I mean, there may have been some rights issues and other things that sort of slowed it down. But, you know, if you think, oh, Rivet, new, French New Wave, and this is kind of another take on, you know, Breathless or 400 Blows, this, it, you, you can sort of feel the connections or the, the, the common themes. But this is definitely a slower, more meandering, 
there are some fresh and saucy moments, you know, that you think of as as kind of the 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 exuberance of the French New Wave, but there are some long stretches that are a little bit more dry, and and it doesn't have that same kind of snazzy jazzy feel to it that that you get from early godard or Truffaut. um but but it's it's it kind of creates this world that you sort of get caught up in i really like that kind of you know bohemian scruffy you know not the glamorous side of paris by any means i mean you see some of the landmarks you, it, there is this kind of you know um uh, travelogue that's not the word i really want because that that kind of gives a very false impression but but you're you're really experiencing the you know the the space of the city and and the alleys and the the low budget apartments and 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 just kind of the the um the atmosphere of of the peer groups and these artistic types uh, all trying to sort of scramble and find their way through with this kind of dreadful ominous overtone of of sinister things going on, a suicide that might be a murder, people knowing more than they're willing to say, uh, having to piece together very elusive bits of evidence that maybe point to something, but might just be a bunch of weird coincidences that our own you know, paranoia and uncertainty are kind of tying together you know, inappropriately or without adequate justification. So, yeah, so like I say, it gets back to this kind of, you know, slightly alienated, displaced attitude, sort of like what Scott said, where the world is starting to fall apart. You know, you've got, you know, kind of a, it's not a real explicit upfront, but there's kind of this backdrop of, you know, political uncertainty, you know, economic uh, disruption, uh, you know, the Philip Kaufman character, this, this kind of exiled, uh, you know, f- from America, this Pulitzer Prize winner, this you know, he's a guy with a with with a you know, a talent, a brilliant imagination, and and the ability to capture something that gets recognition, and yet, you know, he's he's having some some medical and maybe some psychological issues and some post traumatic stress and having these kind of seizure fallout episodes, and that's just one character, even though he's pretty central to the whole thing. But you you've really got this very broad spectrum of, of things going on. And so, uh, it, it sort of sneaks up on you. Uh, that's how I, I experienced it anyways. And it took me a little while to sort of get into it, but I think by the, the third time through, uh, and this is a very long movie, this was a dedicated effort, you know, to, to really settle into it. I found it much more intriguing. And I think I've kind of attuned myself a little bit to Rivette's vibe and that might be a good preparation for some of the longer, more ambitious stuff that, uh, he has in store for for those who want to follow him on his uh, cinematic journey. Yeah, I have found that most of the time when I'm watching a Rivette film, you know, I'll get halfway through, quarters of the way through it, and not entirely sure how I feel about it, and have a lot of moments of even outright boredom and just not trying to piece it all together. And then, but somehow by the end, I, I feel this like sense of elation, like it has all come together. And there's actually that moment. I think it's kind of one of the weaker moments in the film where uh, Anne and Gerard discuss the play they're putting on how it's all kind of disconnected but it makes a certain amount of sense and they're essentially talking about the kind of films Rivette wants to make and it kind of feels like uh, an apology to the audience and like just stick with us and we'll get through this together but <laughs> I, I I agree with them I think it does come together in a certain sort of metaphysical kind of way 
Um, yeah, that decision, they're going to produce Shakespeare's Pericles, which is kind of almost semi-apocryphal. Uh, it's very seldom put on. The, there's lots of different scenes that move over sp- you know, space and time. And it is, it's kind of unplayable just as this plot line, if you were to pitch it in a conventional studio setup, would just say, this movie doesn't go anywhere. Why would you even bother making it? And you're right, you're right. There, there is something unique going on here. This feels to me more akin to uh, Rene's Hiroshima Mon Amour than that side of the new wave than the Truffaut Godard style. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that Criterion's released it. I think it's a really intriguing invitation to explore uh more of the of that original new wave than than might you know be more commonly canonized in, in films i've already referenced the last thing i want to say about it is uh about the title which is sort of contradicted right away after the opening credits when they have this quote that says paris belongs to nobody um but i read this great article that ryan i'll send you the link so you can include it with the show notes that was written for senses of cinema that talks about the title and it's really common to all revet films that it's about this group of young creative people who feel an ownership of the city despite having no economic or social power there um but it's definitely as someone who's lived in a few cities and you know amongst the uh, younger creative-minded classes. It's definitely a, a feeling people have in the air to this day of a sense of ownership over their city, despite the fact that their city seems to constantly try to be throwing them out. Uh, did you have any... I guess, how did it feel watching something like this or or mo- of his movies in general set in Paris, having just gone to visit Paris recently? Um, well, I've always had a you know low-grade obsession with the city, as I think so many uh, creative-minded and uh, forlorn Americans have. But um, certainly after having been there, you know, you, it, so much of the city has changed that I couldn't recognize any real landmarks. Um, but certainly the feeling, like I said earlier, of kind of walking around and finding yourself looping back to the same corners and feeling the city kind of designed against the idea of finding your way around it and you're either going to kind of merge with it and kind of flow with it, or you're going to be kind of constantly chasing your tail in it. Uh, and it certainly captures that. And also just the undeniable beauty of it. I, you know, that iconic shot of Gerard standing over the city and looking down on it is pretty, that's, there's reason that image has become so associated with the film. It kind of encapsulates so much of the sense of the city that Rivette has of a certain mastery of it. But when you look down on it at all, it seems to make no sense at all. So the other um, film that Criterion has on their Hulu channel is the short film that's included on uh, this release as a supplement. Yeah, it's a, an interesting short film. Uh, Rivette worked a lot with Eric Romare uh, in the early 1950s, and they made a lot of short films together. Rivette would be the director of photography or to produce them or something in this film in some ways, which is kind of a ironic social com- comedy of sorts feels a lot like those Romare films and kind of has a kinship there. And it's interesting to see Rivette tackle that, you know, a lot of the camera angles you feel are very much uh, Rivettian, although the plot is very uncommon from what he'd tackle next. Um, and every, the whole time I was watching, it was nagging at me because I swear I've seen that premise played out in some other movie before, uh, it's about a woman who's having who's cheating on her husband with a guy who buys her a fur coat, but they don't know how she can hold on to the fur coat without her husband, you know, asking questions. So they hide it in a suitcase and put the suitcase in a train station. And she finds, you know, quote unquote, finds the ticket 
to that piece of luggage and retrieves it that way. And I swear I've seen that played out in some film before, and I don't know if Rivette stole it or if they stole it from Rivette. If only I could remember the film. So listeners, if you know what I'm talking about, uh, hit me up. I would love to try to remember. (laughs) Where do you think Criterion might go next with Rivette? I mean, given, I know the right situation is is tough with some of these films, um, but do you think there's anything, any obvious next choice for like a, a a second Rivette film in the collection? I mean, someone's going to figure out how to release Celine and Julie. I know it's tied up with New Yorker films, which is bankrupt. Um, but that seems like all the more that, you know, if somebody can kind of get the paperwork figured out that they probably can get the rights for not too much. Um, so that kind of seems like the obvious way to go. It's kind of regarded as his masterpiece. <clears throat> I'd love to revisit it myself because it was the first film of his I saw before I knew what I was getting myself into. And I still don't really know how I feel about it, but I, I feel pretty strongly that that's the way they should go next. Yeah. Very cool. Well, thanks Scott for, uh, for taking that on. Um, definitely the one that I've seen the, the, the least amount of the, t- of the, all of the, the titles this month that we're going to talk about, I had a chance to like watch most of them. Well, actually that's not true. <laughs> Brighter summer day. I have only watched like one and a half times, uh, but Paris belongs to us. I've only watched the one. So, but I did enjoy the supplement. It did. It was very enlightening. I think to, to hear him talk about, um, you know, Rivette's style and, and where he was coming from. So I, I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, that and the essay are both really strong. And I kind of hate it when DVD review sites review how many supplements there are and not how good the supplements are. Yeah, that you know, is they give very these, like two star ratings to just because there's two supplements. And it's like, no, they're really good supplements. And you should just talk about what we got. Yeah, I agree. All right. So next up, we're going to talk about The Manchurian Candidate. This was released on March 15th. This is spine number 803, and uh, this time around, David, you are going to be leading our discussion for this one. Uh, this one was teased at, was this one teased at, or this was just kind of revealed to be coming from Criterion? Uh, I guess they like they teased at it in different ways. There was Angela Lansbury showing up at the, at the collection offices, and there was the uh, the restoration festival that they did at the Wexner Center where they where it was revealed there, I guess, that they were going to be doing this. They were showing off their restoration work uh, at that festival. And then, yeah, there was also the New Year's Wacky Drawing, right. which uh, very strangely used the Queen of Hearts, which is not the card that is featured so prominently in this film. It's the Queen of Diamonds. And so it does kind of get me thinking, was the Queen of Hearts intentional or was that just kind of a flub on the part of the cartoonist? Like he he knew it was the Red Queen, but he got the wrong one. I, I don't know. It's it's maybe, maybe there's some other Queen of Hearts connection coming down the road but that of course in the wacky new year's drawing is in the limousine with the vote jfk and and all of that on it so kind of tying up to the the drew uh kennedy documentaries that is coming out later this month in april but yes the manchurian candidate this is kind of i guess what we would be considering our most mainstream hollywood type of movie it's an american uh, english language film that uh, you know has has a bit of a legend surrounding it it was uh, released right in the heat and the tension of the cuban missile crisis in 1962 of course the release date had already been set nobody knew that that the uh, russian nukes would be pointing at the united states from uh, just 90 miles off the coast of florida at that time but that uh, kind of cements the the legend of when the film debuted. Of course, it was just a little more than a year or so before uh, President Kennedy himself was assassinated. And this is a film that has a very prominent 
uh, political assassination plot. I mean, that's basically the whole driving force of the film. And so in 1963, after the film, it had its kind of theatrical run and uh, you know, it had been revived a few times over the years, but really sort of slipped into an oblivion, which I guess there's still a little bit of dispute as to whether it was you know, intentionally withheld from broader release or re-release. Uh, some people say, yeah, it was kind of almost censored or just kind of locked away because of the sensitivities, uh, following the president's, uh, you know, murder and, and just kind of the discomfort that, that this plot line might've created for people who lived through the shock of, of those events. Uh, but then there's also people saying, well, it just, it, there was no popular demand for it. It just kind of sat there in the shelves. So who knows exactly what the, what the truth was, but the Manchurian candidate really did disappear. And and in those decades in the 70s and the up until the I think the late 80s when it kind of first resurfaced again, you know, there had been a little bit of intrigue, a, a little bit of a a mystery as to uh, what was this film about and let's bring it back again. But yeah, it's, it's a, it's a really like, it's a marvelously weird and very preposterous and daring political satire, kind of in the same vein as uh, Dr. Strangelove, which will be coming out soon enough uh, on a criterion edition. Uh, but of course has been, you know, probably much more popular and, and more broadly seen both because of the Kubrick connection and also just because it's, it's a pretty, you know, uh, you know, fantastically funny and, and remarkable film in its own right. So Manchurian Candidate coming somewhat out of obscurity, I think has a lot going for it. I think this is a very entertaining film. Uh, it, it'll kind of blow viewers away, especially if you've watched a lot of early 60s cinema. Uh, it's pretty remarkable just how blunt and shocking some of the scenes are in this film. When you think about what was happening theatrically in, in uh, Hollywood-type movies of the early 60s, I mean, some of the, the killings are are, are pretty startling in their cold bloodedness and, and just the, the kind of blunt brutality that, wow, they just, they just shot and killed somebody in a way that sort of just feels a little bit more extreme than other films of this era. And just, just the strangeness of this, this brainwashing conspiracy theory, you know, anti-communist paranoid, uh, you know, kind of, melange of all these different ideas and all these kind of uh, suppressed fears about what those nasty commies might be doing to our, our good soldiers if they got their hands on them and, and, and applied some of these, you know, uh, bizarre, uh, you know, brainwashing techniques that even now they're, they're perfecting behind the iron curtain. It, it's a great snapshot of, of a country that's, you know, Really, I mean, the United States at that time was really, you know, at the top of its game in terms of an economic superpower, and yet it was facing this very real sense of existential threat, and uh, the idea that they might uh, have planted uh, subversive agents deep within our culture, just poised and primed to to wreak havoc at the at the drop of a signal. That's really what this film is about. Uh, if you don't know the basic story, it's it's about a group of uh, Korean uh, U.S. Uh, soldiers over in Korea that are ambushed and kidnapped. And then one of the uh, men who happens to be the stepson of a prominent senator 
uh, has been, you know, basically encoded to follow directions when he's given certain cues and he will commit any act of cold blooded murder. Uh, basically once he's told what to do, he will just do it unquestioningly, unthinkingly. And, uh, you know, without spoiling the whole thing for first time watchers, there's some machinations that go on behind the scenes that, uh, put him in position to, you know, really do some damage from the inside, so to speak. And uh, on top of all that, you've got characters like Frank Sinatra, uh, an American icon himself, you know, a great singer, uh, but really beyond just his vocal talent or his musical abilities, he's a guy who just represents so much of, you know, mid 20th century American culture across the board. And to see him uh, in a very pivotal role as the guy who's trying to piece this, uh, you know, mystery together. Uh, it's, it's, it's very entertaining just to see, uh, you know, old blue eyes doing his thing as a kind of a, a hard boiled, uh, military officer who's, you know, put in, put into, uh, you know, a PR role, but knows a little bit of karate can, can fend for himself <laughs> and, uh, basically takes it on himself to, you know, unravel this conspiracy before uh, chaos is unleashed. So yeah, I, I just found this a very entertaining film and, uh, one that I think, you know, doesn't maybe require the same kind of diligent effort or, uh, you know, sustained focus that getting into something like the the Rivette film uh, or some of the other films uh, might require. This is one where you can just sort of sit back and just you kind of get, get, get caught up and blown away by by some of the surprises and plot twists and even some of the, uh, you know, the excellent movie making that John Frankenheimer, uh, you know, put on display here. The uh, the commentary with Frankenheimer was pretty interesting too. I listened to some of that, uh, especially like the the bit on the train when they're talking when he's talking to to um, uh, Janet Lee to Janet Lee that that whole scene. I just wanted to, I wanted to hear what what he had to say, and there wasn't really much like a much of a reveal. It was there. a straight lift from the novel, but yeah. the, you're right. The dialogue is is just so crazy. Like, is are they speaking in some kind of code language? Yeah, yeah. Or, yeah right. I mean, they have and, to, and be, it, but. Yeah. Yeah, but but it's not really explained where no. that's going. And, yeah. and so, you know, and let me just say there there are some things about the film that you, you just sort of got to go along with it. I, like I said, it's kind of preposterous. The idea that by showing a playing card, somebody could just sort of be locked into this trance where they're completely susceptible to any you know automatic suggestion. You know, I, I I mean, I work in mental health and psychology. I know the mind doesn't exactly work that way. So it's, there's kind of a conceit here that a person could be so perfectly programmed uh, and and susceptible to this kind of external control uh, if only people really could be controlled that way but so you, you, this is this is the paranoia and fear angle that somehow some kind of corrupted scientific technology can can really abuse and and manipulate people to that extent uh, i think I think our, our trust in in these techniques isn't nearly as as maybe perhaps uh, uh, I don't know gullible or or uh, you know willing to go along with it. But but the ideas themselves that the, that there there are traitors within our midst and and uh, awful conspiracies waiting to erupt before our very eyes even at the heart of our of our leadership and of our government 
there's there's certainly a lot of resonance even even in this political season we're in now where people buy into a lot of plots and and conspiracies Uh, this is just kind of a an earlier and perhaps in some ways less sophisticated presentation of a lot of ideas that kind of grab a lot of our minds these days so scott you ended up reviewing this almost a year ago exactly when the arrow release has it been that long i know yeah uh but did i so i'm assuming you didn't go out and rebuy the movie for the criterion release uh no one blu-ray of you know i like the manchurian candidate well enough that it's not like near and dear to me i if i was picking up would be a no-brainer for the uh, angela lansbury interview alone uh but uh i I'm curious to hear about that. And, you know, it's, 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 it's a good film. I'm glad Criterion is adding it. It's certainly worthy. I'm definitely glad they included that commentary with Frankenheimer where he tells him, I think it's, oh no, I think, is it Manchurian Candidate that he has to let, he tells a story about like seeing it in some foreign country and they just took a reel out of the movie when they're showing it. Uh, that does sound familiar. I can't remember now. I've, uh, it's either that or seconds. I, I can't remember. Yeah, I haven't listened to the entire commentary. I oh, listened okay. to the earlier portions of it, up right up about till about that train section that Ryan referred to. There's a lot of cool little anecdotes just about the making of the film. There's a nice conversation between Frankenheimer and uh, I think George Axelrod, the screenwriter, and Sinatra, you know, like back in the 1980s, like some 25 years. I think it was right around the time that the film was being re-released, probably on VHS back at that time, and just kind of coming out of the vault there, and the guys were kind of thinking back. And, And the fact is, you know, Frank Sinatra was not just a you know, a celebrity who was cast for this role. He was actually a very instrumental force. He he himself really wanted to to put his clout behind the making of this film. And when you think about Sinatra, a guy who was on a personal friendship level with John F. Kennedy, but also had some, you know, pretty well documented connections to organized crime and, you know, the mafia. I mean, he's he, this guy was just he was at the hub of so much that was happening in at the upper levels of American society and culture at that time. And, and to put himself in this role in this particularly kind of a, a warped movie, uh, just a, a really kind of weird perspective. I mean, Frankenheimer himself mentioned scenes that he filmed just, just for their weirdness. He just wanted to kind of <laughs> weird people out a little bit. I think that's, that's, that's pretty remarkable that uh, Sinatra who definitely could have just played it safe and, uh, yeah, he, he wanted to do something pretty edgy. I think that's, that's a, that's a very, you know, maybe a lot of people think of Sinatra as Mr. Mainstream or, you know, just a crooner or, uh, you know, just kind of a, a voice of an older generation, but he, he's quite an intriguing character and he, he really puts himself out there. I mean, he, he performs a lot of his stunts. It seems like a lot of the fight scenes are really him getting tossed around and, and punching and kicking and doing all that stuff that they might've otherwise put a body double like he wanted to kind of mix it up a little bit you know yeah and he's really good in the movie i mean frank you can definitely feel frankenheimer kind of pushing him to do something different i mean not that he wasn't a naturally good actor i think if you see you know on the town or someone came running or any of the other films he did in the 50s he didn't just rest on his star power he was kind of always looking for ways to push himself and this is i think maybe the f- furthest he pushed himself at least in the films i've seen and this is definitely a very compelling performance and you know he stands up well against lawrence harvey and angela lansbury and all these great actors 
Yeah, yeah. There's a great supporting cast. You know, Janet Lee's been mentioned. I don't know how to pronounce the guy's name, but Keeg Dia or whatever. He's he's one of the villains in uh, James Bond movies as well. And there's a you know, there's even familiar faces from a lot of '60s TV character actors and stuff. And Frankenheimer, who you know kind of came out of that live TV era as a director and, uh, you know, of, of kind of the golden age of television. Uh, you know, he, he kind of has a lot of cool little making of stories as well. But last one last thing, there's a really great Errol Morris interview. I think Ryan uh, yeah. said some I, positive I, things about that. You want no, to talk about that? A well, little no, bit? I, it's, it's, it's pretty short. Um, but it's fun to hear him, you know, talk about this movie and kind of remember it. Uh, and, you know, especially with all of his political documentaries, he has a nice perspective on, uh, on the film and, I don't know. I, I thought it was fun. Yeah, it's, it's a nice little kind of almost like a little intro piece, just kind of a yeah. little endorsement type of thing. Uh, there's a nice uh, historical context short from Susan Carruthers, just really just talking about the Cold War and maybe for younger viewers. I mean, I'm a, I'm a kid of the 60s, so I remember a little bit about, you know, nuclear bomb drills and all that kind of stuff. And But, but you know, for people for that, for that for whom that's just pure history, she does a nice job of putting this film in its context and really just kind of how you know, kind of how radical it really was. But one thing I really want to emphasize that really, you know, uh, I appreciate is the, the Howard Hampton essay. Howard Hampton is a is a pretty awesome writer. And, you know, we talk a lot about cover art and supplements, but we haven't really, in even on these podcasts, talked a whole lot about the written supplements. But as I was reading the Howard Hampton essay, which, of course, you can read on the you know Criterion uh, website, that guy really has a way with words. <laughs> I, I uh, really enjoyed just kind of the the uh, the energy and and the kind of vitality of of his thoughts on this film. And I just want to commend people to just read what he writes about it. I think it'll it'll definitely pique your interest if you haven't watched it yet, or even if you have seen it. He just brings out some angles, and he just writes with this kind of flair and swagger that uh, I find really engaging. It just made me think, you know, i got to sort of specifically look for some of his stuff. He's, he's written like on, uh, yeah, well, he, he did that, the Death by Hanging essay, which, which I talked about uh, last month. Uh, he wrote about A Hard Day's Night. He seems to like to, you know, write about some of the more brash kind of pop culture and Japanese stuff. Uh, so, yeah, look for Howard Hampton. I definitely endorse him and, and recommend his writing as a criterion essayist. So uh, good on you, Howard Hampton. So uh, Frankenheimer followed up The Manchurian Candidate with Seven Days in May, which is not available on Blu-ray anywhere. It looks like Warner Brothers is the rights holder of that one right now. And so um, I guess it's up to them to release that one on Blu-ray, but that would that would be an interesting. I mean, I I I haven't seen that one in a long time, but I think it's available in HD on Vudu and maybe some other streaming services. But uh, th- I think that would be a good uh, pair with this one. I know you you mentioned it in your review, Scott, is not like um, working quite as well as this one. Uh, I, I'm not a big fan of Seven Days in May. Yeah, it's uh, a lot of build up to a lot of nothing, but it is on Amazon. It's also in this TCM collection for Burt Lancaster. So it's kind of out there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right. Well, uh, Arik, did you have anything you wanted to say about seven or about mentoring candidate before we move on? Uh, no, with uh, with with the post I'm doing on Berlin Alexanderplatz this weekend and the next two films, I didn't have a chance to rewatch. I saw this movie a long time ago on a DVD my grandmother gave me, but I haven't had a chance to watch the Criterion one yet. Cool. All right, well, let's uh, move on now to 
kind of the big release of the month, although this month is full of big releases. Uh, if not the year, though, this is yes, huge. If, if not the year. Uh, so A Brighter Summer Day. This is one that has been talked about and rumored and uh, hoped for for years now. Um, you know, decades, I guess, given the, you know, the poor state of previous editions, laser discs and whatnot. Uh, and it's finally here and everyone now has a chance to go out and own this movie, you know, new 4k restoration, um, new commentary track with Tony Raines talking throughout the whole movie. It's that is uh, in itself quite a feat. Um, but you know, there are, there's the documentary about the new Taiwan cinema movement, and, you know, quite a few other uh, little supplements, interviews and whatnot. Um, Arik, you had a chance to watch this. You just you just recently reviewed it on your site, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what did you I guess for me, like, I just want to start this by saying that all of that build up to the movie finally getting announced from Criterion uh puts a lot of pressure on a movie like this to <laughs> to kind of to bowl to bowl one over I guess in a way like you there's there's so many expectations kind of built up just around like when there's like a, this reputation for a movie being lost but also being just like amazing or maybe not lost but just kind of unavailable uh, given you know rights situations or, or materials being you know poorly handled um, so when when criterion releases stuff like this, there's always this like moment that I have where I'm like, okay, well, I need to like lower my expectations because I, I have like these weird uh, skewed ideas as to what like how I'm gonna feel coming out of this movie. Uh, and this movie is fantastic, and I I loved watching it. It is very long though, so it does require at least for me, uh, with my limited time able to watch movies, I have to kind of split something like this up over the course of I think three days is what I ended up doing. Um, but then I did actually go back and, and rewatch the first couple hours or not the first couple hours, but like the first hour or so <laughs> in uh, with the commentary track just to hear Tony Raines talk about it. And that was a lot of fun. But I guess, Arik, what did you did you have similar high expectations put upon this movie? Oh, definitely. Um, I haven't seen uh, any of his other films like Yee or any of the other stuff. Um, and I've I've been meaning to watch that one forever. But I as I mentioned uh, on my site, I have a allergy to films that are this long <laughs> it's yeah. just it's just too long so i hadn't um i hadn't gotten around to it uh and i probably wouldn't have watched this one anytime soon if it wasn't for for this project which is cool because it's it is an incredible incredible film so but, but i did have yeah i had very high expectations and i was also kind of like um weirdly uh uh angry with the film <laughs> because it's so long i was like oh my god you're going to make me watch a four hour. The movie is four hours long. So, I mean, that is extremely uh, a long. Although, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, I'm currently watching the 15 hour Berlin Alexanderplatz. Although that's at least like spread out into, into, you know, different chapters and stuff. But um, I, I also watched it in multiple sittings, not three. I think I did. I watched it most of it one night and then um, it got quite late and I was loving it. And I, I didn't want to stop which was surprising to me, but I was like, oh, I need to just go to bed and wake up tomorrow and finish it because otherwise I'm not, you know, like that moment where you know that you're not really capable of, of giving it the attention it deserves. And I really wanted to, cause it was, it was so brilliant. And I think, um, what I said on my site and I, I, I definitely, uh, uh, felt this very strongly is that it is one of the very few movies of, of the length approaching this that I at least can, uh, 
see where the justification for the length comes in. Yeah, I mean, um, I, there's not. It, it kind of, I mean, this might be a dumb comparison, but it is kind of like watching something like The Wire where you're, or like, you know, it's, where it's like a novel being spread across the, your screen. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, some movies, it's interesting because movies can feel long or short independent of their running time, right? Like uh, a, a film like Dreyer's Day of Wrath is feels very long, even though it's not actually that long. Um, but this movie doesn't feel, I mean, it's, it is long, but it doesn't feel long because it's, it, like you said, yeah, it's just like the story is progressing at all times. So there's not a lot of, there's just a lot of story. There's not a lot of, uh, it's not like it's all long, long takes and wistful glances and things like that at all. There's just a lot happening. There's uh, more than 80 speaking characters in the film. There's every character in the film has like a detailed and involved storyline. Virtually every character goes through some kind of arc, uh, whether or not we see all of it or it is exactly clear to us where it fits in or not. Like it, it has a linear story and a progression, but there's just, it's just an entire world. It says it's as vast as, uh, you know, Edward Yang's memories of his childhood were, I guess. I mean, it's just, it's, it's massive. Did I, I guess Scott or David, did either of you have a chance to, to watch any of this? I've, I've watched. only watched like, I just real quick. I've only watched like the first five minutes. The transfer is gorgeous. I can't wait to watch the rest. <laughs> <laughs> it does look amazing. It really does. Yeah. I, I have watched the whole thing through just the one time, not into any of the commentaries. I watched probably about a half an hour of one of the supplements on the second disc, kind of the, kind of that history of the new Taiwan cinema, uh, just to kind of get a, 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 you know, kind of a sense of, the context of this film I have seen years ago um, and was really impressed by it. But, you know, again, that that's also a lengthy, like a three hour film here. Yeah, this is, this is four hours without, you know, without an intermission. I, like I just a few weeks ago, I was in Chicago and I saw uh, Cleopatra and Lawrence of Arabia back to back in a theatrical <laughs> setting. <laughs> wow. Like, eight hours of butt time on a theater seat, you know, uh, but it was really great because as a full theater and, and, you know, this great, you know, 70 millimeter cinematic experience with crowds and everything, you know, I think we have to, have to acknowledge that watching it on home video is a different type of a thing where you can hit the pause button, take a break, step to the bathroom, get your snacks, spread it out over a couple nights or whatever. I, I really want I me, mean, what would this be like seeing in the theater four hours without, a, without an assigned break like when do you take the decision to say okay i gotta go stretch out get a breath of fresh air you know have a smoke get a snack use the bathroom whatever the case may be so it is it, these are you know this is very novelistic i think paris belongs to us is also a very novelistic film there's just you know this kind of this this sprawling feel to it but it is gorgeous i mean my goodness the 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 incredible beauty and lighting and framing that Edward Yang accomplishes. I mean, it's just, I, I really, my, my jaw was just dropping one scene after another, you know, whether the camera's doing a pan from kind of an outdoor scene to this kind of interior lit, but it's just, or, or just, you know, just the framings, you know, there's definitely, you know, shades of kind of, uh, you know, Ozu or some of these, you know, where there's, a, you know, frames within the frame, you know, doorways and windows and things like that. But but just the way this film glows and and thinking, you know, this is not some big budget, you know, super financed production. Uh, this, this was a very scrappy, 
you know, film uh, that where he had to gather lots of resources on, you know, and, and be very, very uh, almost kind of streetwise. He's putting a lot of amateurs on the screen here, you know, with 80 speaking parts and a lot of them involving, you know, young kids, adolescents, you know, teenagers, or maybe even younger kids than that. You know, this is not, these are not like accomplished theatrical performers. He's just taking sort of raw talent and real life and capturing it on film and, and just what a, what an incredible accomplishment. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't really still know what the full extent of the Taiwanese film industry is, but the, this is a really superior work of art that captures a very little known story. I mean, to me, this is truly stepping into a, a whole new world. I mean, I've seen, you know, lots of Japanese film, you know, some mainland Chinese and, and a few Korean films be here. But this 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 story of, of this little island, relatively little island that was kind of invaded by troops who had just been defeated in a war. They're basically, you know, running for their lives and finding a, a new home base and rebuilding the society under this kind of martial law concept with all the with all the pressures, with all the expectations, with all the fear and, 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 you know, it's another kind of a, <laughs> I mean, we, we've had sort of three examples of, of highly paranoid cultures <laughs> in, uh, the you know, Paris belongs to us in the Manchurian candidate. Now in this one, uh, that might be the theme of, of March, I suppose, you know, <laughs> <laughs> the paranoia <laughs> angle, you know? Oh yeah. Um, there's, but, I mean, you could definitely put some of that in, uh, into Bicycle Thieves and Poem as a Naked Person, I think. For sure. Maybe we'll, we'll, maybe we'll unpack some of that. But yeah, it's Absolutely. just, there's, there is, it, it's just an incredible story that uh, opened my eyes. It's stuff I've never really thought about before. And uh, yeah, for a four hour film, I'm in t- really eager to, to watch it again. I mean, <laughs> that there's maybe not a lot of films where you've spent that much time and say, okay, let's give this one another quick turnaround. But I really, I, I want to listen to the Tony Raines commentary and I just want to kind of immerse myself in this world a little bit more. So I, I totally understand the hype and the anticipation and also even that sense of, of mourning that people who had seen it uh, theatrically and then for so many years, maybe not having access to it again. And you kind of miss that, uh, but uh, yeah, th- this is a this is a pretty pretty incredible release, and uh, uh, we're very, very 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 fortunate to have it. I think um, I think one of the reasons that it's it's so engaging beyond just the the specifics of the main story or any of the stories is that there's also, uh, and you kind of alluded to this, David. There's like so much going on. Um, that isn't necessarily the focus in terms of it's a film made in the nineties. I think it's Yang's only film not set contemporary, contemporarily, uh, con- the word anyway. Um, it's, it's set in the sixties when he was a child. Right. And it's, it's a very specific period in like Taiwanese history, which I didn't know a whole lot about. I knew maybe more than many. Cause I had a, a friend growing up from Taiwan who told me a lot of these stories, but there's like a, a ton going on where like all the kids are wearing, military uniforms because of the martial law that you mentioned. Um, you know, the dad is a, a, a government functionary who at, at one point in the film, uh, you know, is taken in for questioning for supposed communist uh, involvement. Um, there's discussion around China and people coming and going from, from mainland China. And, 
and all of that. And that's not even like the, the main topic of the film, right? So there's, no, it's just the context, just the background of what was, where these kids were going through their own changes of life, but in this real pressure cooker really of a society. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you know, the film came out roughly, I mean, I think the martial law period ended in the late eighties and like the, the sort of modern era began right around the time the film came out. So it was, it was very, uh, of its time to talk about those kind of topics in, in a kind of a similar way that Manchurian Candidate was kind of of its time as well. It's, uh, the special features, I, I, I haven't gotten a chance to watch, um, uh, most of them, but the one, the interview with, with, uh, with the main character, uh, played by, uh, what was it? Chow Sir, played by Chang Shen, who I was like the whole time I was like, that guy looks really familiar. And then it's the dude from, um, Crashing Tiger, Hidden Dragon. I was like, oh yeah, he grew up and is still, apparently he's quite a well-known Taiwanese actor, which I, I did not know. But I thought that interview, which wasn't super long, was actually a, a really strong one. I liked it a lot. I don't know if you guys watched it or felt the same way, but I thought, thought it was interesting, especially, uh, that he said that, um, that he, up until the time he made this movie, he was a very outgoing kid and that the film made him antisocial, which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like he became his character from the film. He claims. So uh, the, the move, the, at least the release, is spread across two discs. It's nice that they didn't try to squeeze everything onto that one disc. I mean, I, I guess they probably couldn't with the running time, but uh, it's nice that they kind of gave it room to breathe and really let that transfer shine, I think, on the Blu-ray. And I think yeah, when the, I fr- isn't, isn't the retail price pretty much the standard 40 bucks? Uh, I think so. They, they did yeah, because sometimes when they've had to do the double discs, they've actually bumped it up an extra ten. So they, they seem to want to make this more accessible or you know a more popular release by keeping it at the same price point, even though you're getting a lot of material here. You're just I'm sure they're going to make it footage. up in volume. Oh yeah, yeah. I think this should do very well. <laughs> yeah. When I first opened it up, I was afraid they'd spread the movie on two discs, but they they hadn't. There was a lot of talk, or or you know maybe not rumors, but like, you know, speculation, I guess, as far as how, if Criterion would do another um, film foundation box set, you know, or another Martin Scorsese film project, uh, world cinema project box set with this included in it because it was restored by the film foundation. Um, But obviously it didn't. And there is yet to be another one of those boxes. And so those kind of have gone by, or at least, you know, it's, it's stalled as far as we know. Yeah, the volume one on the cover is looking a little disingenuous. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the film is available if anyone, uh, you know, you don't want to go out and pick up the Blu-ray. You can go download it or stream it on iTunes. And I think it might also be streaming uh, through Criterion's portals on a few other places like Amazon and um, I think even on YouTube right now. So it's it's out there for everyone to see. And hopefully they'll, they will, uh, you know, make back what they spent on the restoration. And uh, I'm sure they will. If you can, though, I would I would recommend not watching it via streaming just because, you know, it is such a beautiful film, as David mentioned, and it's not going to and given the immense running time, I I imagine that it will not look uh, anywhere near as good on the streaming. Definitely. All right. Well, uh, unless there's anything else you guys want to mention about A Brighter Summer Day, let's jump to the next film that was released on March 29th. A Poem as a Naked Person. It's fine. Number 805. This is the latest film that we are getting from Les Blank, although this is quite an earlier film of his that has been unavailable for 
uh, you know, essentially the entire life of its existence since it was made. Uh, it's only been available to be screened uh, under very specific circumstances. And finally, last year, or actually the year before, I think Criterion uh, was able to get the rights to uh, to the film theatrically through Les Blank's son. And uh, it played at South by Southwest. And uh, they had a little theatrical tour through Janice. And now it's uh, here on home video. And Arik, you are going to be our uh, lead on this one. Uh, I know you had a chance to see this one when Janice was showing it theatrically. And uh, I'm glad I'm so glad that it's now finally on Blu-ray. Yeah, me too. Uh, this this is a film. It was so it was filmed. Uh, it was Les Blank's first uh, feature length film, and it, it was made in like it's from like seventy two to seventy four. You know, right shortly after he had completed uh, Blues According to Lightning Hopkins, and and after he had filmed a couple other uh, short short documentaries, but hadn't released them. But it wasn't released until like you said last year. So like you know forty one years of sitting around. And um, that's largely because its subject, uh, musician Leon Russell, uh, produced and financed it. So this was actually a, a, a work for hire project. This wasn't uh, Les Blank uh, deciding to make a movie about Leon Russell. Leon Russell and his business partner, Denny Cordell, had seen uh, Blues According to Lightning Hopkins and decided, for whatever reason, I actually think it's kind of a weird pairing, uh, but that, that they would hire Les Blank and have him come out. Uh, uh, to Oklahoma, where Leon Russell was building a new house, and and film him for some sort of. It's not really clear, even with all the supplements on there, why uh, Leon Russell wanted to hire him to do this, or what exactly the film was he wanted to make. But something maybe in the "Don't Look Back" kind of vibe, or something was being attempted. At any rate, um, Blank agreed mainly because he needed uh, some editing equipment to edit two of the two short features he had just finished, and so he he agreed to to live on this like lake on uh, on Leon uh, Leon Russell's property and 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 be allowed time to edit his movies in addition to making this. So he did, and he put together this this film. And when he was finished, uh, Russell decided um, it was it was bad timing because Russell and, and Cordell had just severed their business relationship. But um, he decided Russell decided that he didn't he didn't like the film. He didn't feel that it uh, reflected well on him or that it wasn't the film he wanted. And so he put it in a drawer. And as you said, the only way this film could be seen for the 41 years in between was due to a, a, a loophole in the contract that Les Blank discovered where he could show it if it was uh, non-commercial and he was there. And so that was the only way it was seen uh, for many, many years, including the last time it was shown uh, publicly before it came out recently on the on the Janus tour, which was at Pixar in Emeryville uh, with with um, Les Blank in attendance. And there's a QA and a that he did at that showing uh, on the disc. So the film is a um, it's it's really not a documentary about Leon Russell almost at all, which I think is why Russell probably didn't want it released. It's a. It's very much just a Les Blank is in Oklahoma and has a lot of time on his hands and runs around meeting interesting people and filming them. So there's like a ton of footage in the in the film that has very little to do with Leon Russell. So if I mean, he is the main character of the film and there is some minimal amount of concert footage and certainly some like backstage stuff and conversations and things like that. But there's also a lot of stuff in this film that's just sort of things around. And so if you're if, if what you're looking for is a. Is to learn more about Leon Russell, or, or to if, if if you want a documentary on Leon Russell, then I don't know if you're going to be super satisfied <laughs> yeah. with this. But if yeah, you'll learn you'll learn next to nothing about him in this movie. I nothing, mean, apart from like, like yeah, 
like, I, I don't know anything about him, and I still don't know anything about him. Like, they don't <laughs> explain who he is, why he's famous, what he's done. Who's, I mean, I know David knows some things about his career. I know nothing about him and still know nothing about him. But if you if you love the world of Les Blank, if you love the kind of yeah. cinematic world that he exists in, if you love the kind of uh, not really focused but very sort of interested exploration of minutia and details of life kind of cinema that Les Blank that was so prevalent on the on on Burden of Dreams and also on the the box set from uh, last year um uh, Always for Pleasure uh which is a box set I absolutely adore uh then you will love this movie because it is just more it's just bigger uh uh Les Blank uh it's 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 wonderful I absolutely uh loved it and there are uh, a lot of really awesome supplements that we'll get to when after other people have said some things too my favorite moment in the movie has to be the the painting of the pool, uh, but yeah. but not even just like the the painting of it. More like the the minute that he spends uh, capturing the scorpions, and uh, <laughs> that has to, it's like hypnotizing, and it's like I could watch that on a loop. I think over and over again. I don't know what it is about that scene, but it's so fascinating to watch him do that. Jim Franklin's a good character. He's in a bunch of stuff, and he's he's a lot of fun. This the snake thing's a little disturbing, but the, oh, yeah. he's he's a lot of fun. I mean, yeah, either of you. Oh, sorry, man. Well, no, I was just gonna say. Also, the the many characters that show up in this movie. I think like the those, those the couple at the very beginning of the movie. Um, oh, the you know, caretakers. Yeah, yeah, the husband and wife. Oh, I just I love them so much. <laughs> They're so great when the wife is like, "Oh, I didn't I didn't like long hair, but now I love it, and my husband's growing it too." Like, and these are like you know eighty year old people yeah. in sixties or seventies Oklahoma. They're great. Oh, they're so great. Yeah, there's there's so many uh, awesome random, you know, the side characters. The do you know that the guy who you remember the guy the the parachuting guy who was with the glass. Oh yeah, he he eats the glass. Yeah. So do you know that that guy might be? He's one of the suspects for like an incredibly famous uh, hijacking that's unsolved. Uh, like DB Sweeney, that guy. Yes, he is. He is this Ted Mayhew guy is one of the main suspects to be that guy. Oh, interesting. I, I'm gonna have to go back and rewatch that now because uh, that's that's fascinating. Is that DB Cooper? Oh, DB Cooper. That's what I meant. Oh, DB Cooper. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Sorry, Cooper. you're right. DB Sweeney. That's the actor. Saving you a few uh, little corrective emails. There. Yeah, <laughs> Ted Mayfield is his name, and he was he's one of the like main. Oh my god, it's amazing. He's just in the film, you know, eating eating glass, you know. <laughs> Did uh did 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 you David or, or Scott watch this one? I did not, I have, unfortunately. No. Well, yeah, and I've I've had a few things to say about Leon Russell. Okay, this just goes back to my you know growing up years where Leon Russell was kind of presented as this kind of awesome rock star, and I just never never got into his music. So actually, Eric, when you were saying this isn't so much a documentary about Leon Russell, I was like, okay, I'm cool with that. I mean, it's not, it's not to disparage Leon Russell in any kind of a personal way. It's just like, you know, I just, you know, my impressions of him are from like the concert for Bangladesh, which as much as I love the Beatles and George Harrison, I'm just, you know, it's kind of like that, you know, these big, you know, 18 piece rock bands that get up there and do these kind of, you know, celebrity all-star type. It's like kind of when rock music just started kind of sliding into that indulgent territory, which ultimately turned me into the punk rocker kid from the late seventies, early eighties and all that. So, so I kind of identify Leon Russell with that. I mean, he, he had kind of become kind of a big thing with um, Joe Cocker and Mad Dogs and Englishmen. And so I, I respect his place in rock music history and, 
obviously a super talented musician, a lot of, a lot of influence. I mean, he's a producer. He's a lot of behind the scenes production, pretty tight with the Rolling Stones. And, you know, you know, definitely part of some, some pretty memorable music, but it's just, I don't know, whatever, something about the image or, or just the way he was presented to me as a young person. It's like, uh, no, no thanks. You know, like, yeah, I, I really loved Criterion's Bob Dylan, you know, film from last year. And I think for, for the most part, you know, they've done a really excellent job of kind of curating some of the the more iconic figures of, of, you know, pop and rock music over the last, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, you know, Beatles, Stones, Dylan, uh, that, you know, they're all represented that the major talents, David Bowie's in the collection, obviously. Um, so Leon Russell, like, to me, he's kind of a, a B lister on, on that level, but I definitely am intrigued to see, what maybe the scene was around Leon Russell, who was yeah, you know, certainly at one point a local guy who just kind of made it big. And if that's kind of what we get here, then my interest <laughs> and, and uh, eagerness to see the movie uh, has definitely kicked it up a notch. But but I just, you know, I, I couldn't find a, a good deal, you know, on the discs and you know, time was running short. And I obviously had the, the other uh, longer films to to dig into, so I'll, I'll get I'll get the poem as a naked person eventually. I'll get my bicycle thieves upgrade, but we'll, we'll talk about that in a few minutes. So uh, it, it's day is coming, but I I wasn't like beating the path to the door on this one. I think you'll be very pleased with it when you do get a chance to watch it. I I mean I, it's funny the um the, on one of the supplements there's there's like a new documentary on the sort of the making of the film and it's made very clear that not only do I not know who Leon Russell is, but Les Blank did not know who Leon Russell was either. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> and didn't care like, right. at all. Like he really just, it really feels like he just, you know, someone was going to pay him to edit, uh, I think it was like Hot Pepper and, and the, the, the two the two New Orleans ones. And and someone was going to let, you know, let him film and, and, and buy his equipment. And he was, he was having, you know, he was having fun. He could bring uh, Herod out and they could go fishing and, and these kind of things. I don't, I don't. I don't get the sense that at any point, you know, he and uh, he was never starstruck. Like, Ooh. no, not at all. He, <laughs> right. They got kicked off the tour multiple times. Like Herod, and there's some interviews <laughs> with between Herod and Leon Russell where it's pretty clear that Leon doesn't even really like Les Blank that much. He says that he didn't like Les, but he likes Herod, and so that's why the 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 film is now being released. Um, but it's just like they didn't they didn't really get along, and you can kind of tell because he's very antagonistic. Les is in the in the various moments in the film where they're kind of talking with each other. Um, Ryan, did you, it's, it, it strikes me as very uncomfortable for Herod that, that he, you know, he was like working on it and editing it. There's that scene where Les Blank just gets really drunk and starts making out with yeah. that random lady. Yeah, I do remember that. <laughs> and that was, I could, I could have totally imagined that being uncomfortable for him to watch that. <laughs> so awkward. But yeah, they just, that there's, there's a lot of really great, um, supplements on this one. This is definitely a pretty packed release. There's a, there's a, there's a modern conversation, like I said, between Herod and, and Leon Russell explaining kind of why. A little bit about why Leon didn't want it released and and why he's willing to do it now. There's the Q and A with Les Blank from when the they did the Pixar screening, which shows that he's he's very funny all the way up until the end. I think that was a couple of weeks before he he passed away. There's like I said, this new documentary that's that's actually it's, it's pretty long. It's I think more than thirty minutes. And then there's um, a short film uh, from Maureen Gosling, who's uh, Les Blank's long term collaborator. It's like a weird film with like. B-roll footage of the of the the documentary mixed with uh, text of letters she was writing to her parents at the time, um, and it wasn't my favorite thing in the world, but it was it was a bit boring, but it was interesting. The footage was certainly cool. So this is definitely a 
a, a great release for anyone who uh, is a less blank fan. It's a it's a funny, awesome, fun film. And and if you're not a Leon Russell fan or like David, or you don't know who he is like me, it it really makes very little difference. So <laughs> it'll be great. Yeah, no, definitely. If you are a less blank fan, again, like this should be in your collection. I think. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, uh, let's move on to the final release from Criterion for March. This was the their one uh, real Blu-ray upgrade of the year. We've gotten a couple of other standalone or, you know, like Blu-ray releases uh, in, you know, Brief Encounter getting separated from the box set and uh, Easy Rider. But now we have a Blu-ray, a real Blu-ray upgrade in Bicycle Thieves, the uh, 19, let's see, where's my notes here? The 1948 film from Vittorio De Sica. This is the, um, you know, kind of a major work in the Italian neorealist movement. Uh, a movie that has been available on Blu-ray before Arrow released it a few years ago. But I think this tra- this transfer uh, definitely trumps that older one. This one is, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a downgrade, I guess, from the DVD release in that they, you know, it, they removed some of the the essays that were included in that in that book or the, the little slim down booklet um but i think this movie just is so incredible and so beautiful so we f- are following the weekend of um antonio ricci who's played by uh lamberto majorani and it's you know we follow him and his son as they try to track down uh a stolen bicycle but th- this movie i think is just one of the most powerful, most beautiful, most heartbreaking, uh, and most like rewatchable movies that, uh, the Criterion Collection has. I think this, I mean, I watched this movie twice within the course of a couple of days and I feel like I could just go back and rewatch it again right now and, and still enjoy it. And one thing that I love about this movie is the, like the, the tension and, uh, like anxiety driving forces, you know, involved with, you know, wanting, being a, a parent who needs to kind of take care of your family and and you know while also kind of being a uh you know wants to you know show off who you are as a a person to your your son that you're that's following you around and um there's just so many little so many aspects of this film that i i love um and again the transfer looks beautiful um yeah, I saw. Didn't you like tweet a photo of like <laughs> comparing the two Blu-ray transfers or something like that? And I'm I'm wondering has, has there been some good comparisons of how much better the transfer is from the DVD? Because when I look at, I mean, I, I've got the DVD playing right now, and this is really kind of the latter era, you know, of Criterion before they went into releasing everything on Blu-ray and DVD simultaneously. This is when they were their DVD transfers were really pretty good, and and I'm looking at the DVD right now, and it is kind of picture box. Like you can see some some black framing around the top and the bottom, and that was basically a concession back when there were still people who didn't have widescreen monitors, and so they shrunk the picture just a little bit, you know, just to kind of make sure it fit adequately on CRTs and, and other, you know, kind of older fashioned TVs, but the image itself still looks pretty good. So I'm just wondering how much more pop do you get in the Blu-ray? Uh, I think it's, I think it's noticeable. I mean, um, sure. you know, you can check, I'll put the link in the show notes for the, the DVD Beaver comparisons where he goes between like the Criterion DVD and then uh, the Arrow DVD and then the Arrow Blu-ray and then the Criterion Blu-ray. Um, I think, you know, if you if you get up pretty close to look at some of the 
the details. You can see the difference. Um, I guess it's not, you know, quite the, uh, you know, restoration that maybe something like a brighter summer day gets, or you know, or even the Manchurian Candidate in, in its new restoration, right. but um, or even like older Criterion, you know, like from spines one through two hundred, where they get a Blu-ray upgrade and it's like, wow, just like a night and day difference from the old school DVD to you know, kind of what came after. So, but but still, I, I I'm I'm eager. I, I definitely will want to get the new version. Uh, but you know, you know, as far as the inserts, I mean, like, you know, you have a nice 75 page booklet, you know, yeah. a, a bound booklet. I, that's, that's not even close to what you get in this new one. Right. No, I'm looking definitely. at the, before we, before we jump farther into the, into the booklets, I'm looking at the DVD beaver thing right now, David. Yeah, and, sure. uh, and it, 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 it feels like, like you said, like the, the criterion one, the DVD looks really good. Um, it's, it's very similar. It, they didn't really, they didn't go in any kind of weird direction on like the color grading or well, it's not color, but you know, the, the toning or anything like that, right. but it just looks bigger and more and just nicer. So it, it's just going to look better, right? like g generically better. It's, it, it yeah. looks very similar, just bigger and better. Like, yeah, like, I, a, like you're right. Like just a standard Blu-ray upgrade. Yeah. I'm, but I'm a big fan of black and white on DV on Blu-ray. I mean that, that really there's, there's something shines, really yeah. luminous about that, that uh, truly at the silver screen effect. And it's, it's awesome. It's wonderful. Yeah. And you can see it like in the shadows and the subtle details of his face and things like that. It looks pretty great. I do wish they had kept that, uh, digipack packaging. I mean, looking at the yeah. DVD beaver includes a package shot of that original DVD and that does look nice. And I wish it was, they had continued that over, but I mean, if if this saves them money and this will help sell uh, the release, I think it's you know, uh, I think the film itself looks beautiful and you know there's a nice little interview that's brought over from the past uh, that that 2000. I mean there's nothing new added to this. This is all kind of what has been on there before, um, but that Mark Scheel interview is pretty great as far as discussing uh, Italian neorealism as well as um, this film specifically. Um, a lot of fun. The the Arrow release, if anyone is interested, the Arrow release does include a commentary track with um, the guy who wrote the the BFI book on the BFI film classics uh, book on Bicycle Thieves, Robert Gordon. Uh, that commentary track is interesting, although it's a little dry and not like you know not super insightful. Although it is fun to have him. He does go like scene by scene. He's he's clearly watching the movie and. Um, kind of talking about the, the, the moments in it. Um, but I, as soon as watching, as soon as I rewatched this movie this weekend, um, or I guess over the past week or so, uh, it immediately made me think that we should do this as a, a real full discussion where we talk about, you know, how this movie ends and, uh, all the various themes that are going on in it. And we really talk about some of the shots, I think that are just, you know, kind of haunting and timeless and, and beautiful. Like, you know, the opening of this movie where we see the the kind of place where he is they have pawned the bicycle and they have to get it back uh in order for him to start this new job where he's hanging up posters um you know th those shots of the you know first we see the shots of all the you know the bicycles hanging and then we see the shots of all of the um the, the laundry that people are pawning off to uh you know get a little bit of money to kind of make things you know make do with their their lives um so so beautiful yeah, yeah, this is it's a fantastic story, and it really is one of the most 
sort of canonical Criterion films that has not yet made it to Blu-ray. I mean, I guess there's, you know, Andre Rublev, <laughs> some of those other old, you know, uh, you know, almost cliches by this point, but, but bicycle thieves, you know, like rules of the game, like Tokyo story, like, you know, several of the Kurosawa titles. It's just, it is just such a pillar of world cinema that, uh, you know, for the people who just, get blu-ray only as and don't really do dvds anymore i'm definitely glad that this is this edition exists now because it's it's you know it's probably in that top 10 15 just in terms of importance if you will i mean it may not be people's personal favorites although i think there's a pretty strong case to be made it you know kind of what you said ryan earlier that uh, whole you know you know, even outside of the the post war reconstruction in Italy, it's it is it's about that whole story of wanting to be, you know, the best parent you can and and do something that sort of helps your kid feel proud of you, to stand out from the crowd, the you know kind of the the mass of humanity that's trying to, you know, all make a living and you know as much as we, you know you know we 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 care about our society, we want to you know love our neighbors and and wish for everybody's prosperity and and betterment and all of that but we we have to kind of carve our own way in this world and and bicycle thieves is really about that it's like okay the odds are stacked against you but you still got a family to provide for you got your own self-respect and and uh you know independence and determination to to take care of and 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 when it all starts to go wrong you know you, you got to fight back against that and then you got to find the good moments even in the midst of real adversity i mean that's a just a totally universal story so yeah i'd love to be on an episode where we kind of elucidate all that a little bit more and and uh, maybe turn people on to you know giving the film another watch because it really is a, a a marvelous timeless story i'm also glad you mentioned how rewatchable it is you know Umberto D. Uh, Vittorio De Sica's kind of other big film in the collection. I I don't think I could ever rewatch that. That's a a very painful movie. But this there's something that kind of compels me to kind of get back into it every few years. And you know it's been a few years since I've watched it, so I'm glad we I'm glad Criterion released it now. I guess this was one of your uh, upgrade picks, wasn't it, David? Oh, I, I'm sure I've mentioned it in the past. I can't remember which year it was, but yeah, to me it just seems like kind of like you know, some of those other titles I mentioned earlier where it's just like, you know, come on, this, this is just, this is such a, a major statement, you know, and it's, it's such a reference point that, uh, you know, whether it's from a film history perspective, uh, or just one of those kind of major films by major directors. Yeah. It's just, you know, the, the more exposure it gets, uh, the, the best quality presentation, you know, it's like some of those, you know, Hitchcock restorations and stuff where, you know, it, this, this film just needs to be, you know, put out there in, in top quality. So it, it justifies all the different editions that it's received over the years because, uh, it just needs to be seen. It, 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 it changed, uh, cinema. It, it, this is a film that really made, you know, you know, casting amateurs and, and raw location footage, uh, and, you know, the real man on the street, salt of the earth type of stories, uh, a very compelling subject. I mean, you know, cinema, you know, not, not entirely, but in terms of mainstream commercial success had been about sort of escapism and kind of this, you know, larger than life uh, fantasy world, whether it's, you know, hard boiled detectives or, or, uh, exotic adventures in foreign lands. This, this really, 
you know, <laughs> talks about everyday, ordinary, humdrum, working class people and their struggles. That really wasn't such a conceit as such fertile material for great films, you know. This 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 really opened a lot of people's eyes as to what cinema could talk about and what it could focus on and how it could tell the story. And so, you know, there there's the impact of it, but it's also just, you know, it's it's a very well made film. It's it's uh, it's very lean. It's very effective and efficient in in, in getting its point across, uh, and it packs a it still packs a very powerful emotional punch. I mean, what's not to like about all that? Yeah, I, I, I guess a few things. The um, it was fun watching this and kind of after just getting Gilda uh, a couple of months ago now, back in January, um, to have him to watch him putting up those posters. Yeah, I was yeah. I was immediately like, oh wait, is that the poster from Gilda? Like, what what's going on here? Did they do that on purpose? Uh, but there is an interesting article that I'll put a link in the show notes for where, um, uh, you know, the movie poster of the week, uh. What's his Adam Curry, Adrian Curry? He uh, talks about the um, the, I guess you know where these types of posters came from as far as like you know uh, cinematic history, and uh, you know re- re- posts a few other interesting pictures from Vittorio De Sica's films or posters and things. Um, also, it was really interesting and kind of fun to have this movie be my my second film that I was put, you know, kind of tasked with covering after, you know, being in charge of the kid last month, uh, you know, two very kind of similar stories in, in told in totally different ways. Very fun. Um, and also I, you know, we, we talked about this when we did the newsstand episode, uh, talking about this lineup for, for March, but I wonder why, you know, criterion in, in this year of, you know, no new Blu-ray upgrades really that we got this one. Like, was there a reason, was there something that, you know, kind of fell apart at the last minute and they had to fill a slot uh, in order to get, uh, you know, their kind of, you know, five or six titles in a month uh, release. Like why did, how did this end up, you know, getting moved up? So, I mean, it's something that we won't really ever know unless someone, you know, from Criterion speaks out on it, on it, but I can't imagine that they would. They don't usually talk about stuff like that, but it is fun to think about. My only theory on that is that it takes perhaps in this year with all of these movies they want to get out and the UHD uncertainty and everything that they just takes a film of this stature for them to actually feel like they need to get it out. Yeah. Um, do you guys have any other thoughts on on Bicycle Thieves or maybe on uh, the the month as a whole in in watching some of these films? Um, David mentioned the the theme of paranoia as being maybe like a unifying theme uh, for everything. I was trying, I was racking my brain as far as what what my my theme would be for the 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 month, and I the closest that I've come to coming up with something else is the the idea that, and maybe not the films themselves, but the releases more in that like these are kind of like almost like rediscovered or lost historical items you know sometimes these movies these movies are essentially being seen for the first time even though like so many of them are are old you know with a brighter summer day kind of being lost for so long um as well as you know paris belongs to us so many people haven't seen any rivet films and now we're finally getting you know with the box set and now with paris belongs to us here in the states from uh criterion like you know this is kind of a lot of people's first uh experience with him and obviously, like Bicycle Thieves getting kind of rediscovered now on Blu-ray, hopefully by folks with uh, 
you know, who, who go out and buy Blu-rays. Um, and then, you know, a poem is a naked person. It totally fits that in that it's, you know, a movie that hasn't been available to be seen for all these years. So, yeah, I think that kind of, Pulling lost treasures out of the vault is definitely a pretty good unifying theme. I mean, for the first four, especially, Bicycle Thieves has definitely been, you know, canonical for a long time, but still yeah. maybe more known about than actually watched, you know, or maybe certain clips have been, you know, shown in film school or 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 you know, histories of cinema without taking in the full film. But you're right; those first four films all have been you know, quite buried almost to the point of being suppressed. It might feel, uh, until <laughs> here you go. Here's your criterion version to bring home and put on the shelf. I like the paranoia theme as well. Uh, when David said that, cause especially with like Obama is a naked person, it's, I mean, there's a certain amount of seventies paranoia anyway, but then the idea that at the paranoia is just Le- Leon Russell, not wanting to be portrayed in a certain way. I kind of <laughs> weirdly enjoy but. Well, do you guys have any any closing thoughts on on the month or on uh, what we've been talking about here tonight? Um, maybe I'll go around and, and see if you guys have any anything you want to uh, talk about as far as like this month or 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 anything else. I guess, Eric, do you have any any closing thoughts for tonight? Just that it's a, a really a strong month, I think, just really this year. I mean, I'm definitely sad about the lack of, of upgrades that that's making me sad, but the, you can't really be that sad when the releases are this strong. I mean, all of these films are just absolutely incredibly good. So it's, it's just a, it's a wonderful month. There's really not even in a lot of, I mean, a poem as a naked person is maybe the most controversial in some sense, just because of the Leon Russell factor. But even that just, it, 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 it wants people to see it. It's so great. So I think, you know, other, other than that, I'm just really glad that I had an excuse to watch a brighter summer day. Cause it, it just completely bowled me over. Uh, just one of the best cinematic experiences I've had in a really, really long time. I, I really urge people to, to give it a try. Uh, David, what about you? Well, I, I think we've just got five really solid, you know, big league releases. I mean, they, they all have their own kind of claim to notoriety. And, and I think they both, they all, you know, sort of demand to be noticed and are very worthy of the attention that Criterion has given them. So, you know, even though I might, you know, quibble a little bit about the Bicycle Thieves packaging and, you know, it's just a reality of the times we live in and, and the marketplace. So, you know, just suck it up and deal with it. I mean, if you want the DVD, it's still out there <laughs> and I will be holding on to mine, you know, but it is, it'll be great to have a Blu-ray copy and I'll, you know, probably wait to find a good deal on it sometime down the road. Uh, and I will enjoy, you know, looking at in comparison, of the, you know, the old features and the new. And, uh, yeah, this is, you know, sort of like Eric said, this is a, this is another very solid month and we've got some pretty great stuff to look forward to, uh, in the weeks ahead. Scott, do you have any, any closing thoughts for tonight? Yeah, I mean, I kind of sensed this when we talked about these movies back at the newsstand when they were first announced, and now that they're out there and I've seen, you know, one and, you know, a fraction of them, uh, that this was after kind of a lackluster year for me anyway in 2015, I really feel like Criterion's coming out of the game very strong this year, and this month, at least the two releases I picked up really reminded me of kind of everything I love about the collection of spotlighting films that, you know, uh, are truly great films, but maybe not uh, kind of been given their proper due in presenting them in a way that 
is kind of unparalleled in the home video market. You know, there's a lot of people doing a lot of really important work, but Criterion kind of announced themselves early on as kind of the premier brand of this sort of thing. And I think especially Paris Wong's Do Us and Brighter Summer Day really are evidence of that. And I'm so glad, like you guys said, that they gave two discs to Brighter Summer Day so that the transfer could really stand on its own for such a long film. And I think the transfer is also very strong for Paris Belongs to Us. And just the whole presentation of those two films and from what you guys have said, the others as well, just uh, shows to me once again that Criterion is taking themselves seriously, not just resting on their laurels. And so I'm very excited for the rest of the year. Very cool. Well, guys, thanks so much for joining me tonight. I'll go around uh, the table here and you guys can um, maybe share some links to what you're working on these days. Uh, Arik, you are now, uh, you know, a part of our, our little podcast network. Um, you just have recently uploaded your episode of Taste of Cherry, which everyone should go listen to. Uh, what else What else are you working on or what's what's coming up next? Uh, yeah, so like I mentioned earlier, I, I made the perhaps foolish decision to try to write about uh, Berlin Alexanderplatz for a blogathon um, coming up this weekend. So I've been trying to make my way through that 15-hour epic. Um, other than that, uh, I've just been preparing for this, and uh, I'll be recording the next two episodes of my podcast. Uh, very excited to be a member of the, the group, by the way, um, uh, next week. So just kind of moving forward with that. and. Uh, just having a lot of fun. Excellent. Oh, you can find me at uh, Cinema Gadfly on Twitter or cinemagadfly.com. David, uh, since we've last recorded uh, on the last uh, episode of The Chronicles, you've moved your whole uh, website over to our website. Well, I, I guess I'm my new installments. Are yeah, moving. yeah. Not, I guess you haven't really the moved old, old. The old Criterion Reflections at Blogspot is still there, and I don't have any intentions to to take it down. And I'm not going to go through all the hassle of transferring it over. So, you know, don't, don't want to have to update all my links and all that stuff. But <laughs> yeah, I, I decided to take advantage of uh, you know, Ryan's platform and WordPress, and still figuring out a few things to do with that. But yeah, it's definitely been fun to uh, you know kind of you know, re reboot the project a little bit. And I definitely do uh, want to keep things going. I got a, a review of Mel Brooks, the producers coming up <laughs> as my next, uh, that's a laser disc criterion, just in case you start scrambling, where's the DVD, where's the Blu-ray? <laughs> well, no, that's a, and I'm doing all of them. I'm doing laser disc. I'm doing Hulu. I'm doing any other thing that has a remote criterion connection. And so, uh, Mel Brooks, the producers, uh, with zero Mustel and, and, uh, and Gene Wilder is uh, is next on my plate there. Uh, we have an episode of the Eclipse Viewer that's in the can. I you know Trevor, Trevor's not been feeling well lately, so the editing process has been slowed down a little bit. But we are going to be putting out our episode on Carlos Sora's uh, Flamenco Trilogy, hopefully in the next couple days. And uh, really nice to get that out there. And we've got another episode on the Chantal Ackerman set coming up later this month in April. Uh, and so, yeah, that's that's kind of what I've got going on besides uh, this podcast tonight. Excellent. Uh, Scott, do you have anything you want to promote on the show tonight? Yeah, we just released an episode of the main line about the I Am Curious set. And I really enjoyed oh, yeah, going that. Was through a that. Lot of fun. Yeah, really enjoyed that discussion. Uh, what else do I have going on? I'm writing about... Louder Than Bombs, a new film uh, that comes out this weekend. Uh, by the time this episode goes up, that review should be up as well, so look for that. Uh, and otherwise, I'm on Twitter at Rail of Tomorrow and at Criterion Cast and Battleship Pretension. Cool. All right, everyone. Well, thanks so much for downloading the episode. I'll have links for everything that we talked about tonight uh, in the, the post for the episode. 
Um, thanks for all of the positive feedback that we've received so far on Twitter and on you know the various Facebook pages and groups and things that we uh, all comment on. Uh, we'll be back around this time next month to talk about the April lineup. Um, the, the April lineup is kind of backloaded, so there's three releases on that last week. So uh, we might end up put it, pushing that uh, into the, you know, maybe a little bit further into the next month to kind of give everyone a chance to watch uh, the films. Uh, but we'll be back around the same time next month uh, to talk about this. It's a lot of fun covering these films a little bit more in depth than what we do on the newsstand uh, but a little bit less than what we do on the main episode. So it's a little, it's a nice little middle ground, I think here. All right, everyone, we'll see you next time. <laughs>